Arguably the most important and certainly the largest international gathering of world leaders to talk about climate change issues since the 2009 Copenhagen summit. Now, there are over, well over 100 uh, heads of state are scheduled to address the summit, which is being convened by Ban Ki-moon. Uh, and now this summit is not part of any formal climate change negotiation. Rather, its purpose, as you'll hear in my conversation, is to help build momentum towards some sort of internationally binding climate change regime to replace the Kyoto Protocol. On the line with me to preview this big climate meeting and help put it in larger context of international climate change negotiations and international diplomacy around climate change is Elliot Derringer of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. Uh, and in the conversation you are about to hear, Elliot, kind of walks me through, one, what to expect at this big meeting, two, why this meeting matters towards larger international diplomacy towards climate change, and three, gets into some of the big divisions that we see in the international community around how to create some sort of international agreement to reduce carbon emissions and help developing countries develop in a way that is not as carbon heavy. Uh, I learned a great deal from this conversation both about diplomacy and about the actual you know, issues uh, underlying the diplomacy of climate change. So please do have a listen. Remember, you can subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes. And hit me up on Twitter if you want to ask any questions, if you have any suggestions about topics I should cover or people I should in interview. Hit me up at Mark L. Goldberg or send me an email via markleongoldberg.com. Here it is, my conversation with Elliot Derringer of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, I think the summit really has been time to try to help build political momentum toward the conference next year in Paris. As, as you probably know, there is a formal negotiation underway under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, and the goal of that negotiation is to produce a new global climate agreement toward the end of 2015 at a conference in Paris. Uh, and the summit next week in New York isn't formally linked to the negotiations, but hopefully it will provide some strong political momentum to help ensure a good outcome in Paris. Uh, and this is really the, the first time that heads of state are gathering en masse to, to really focus on the climate issue since the Copenhagen Conference in 2009, uh, which was broadly perceived to be, well, let's say not a success. 
so I think there's a, a real hope and expectation that this time uh, we'll see a more positive message coming out of the summit as a contribution toward delivering a good deal next year. So uh, what do you think we can see at the summit itself? I know there'll be over like 100 uh, heads of state will be presenting. There'll be a few noticeable absences, uh, like uh, the heads of state of China and India. Uh, but what in general do you expect to hear from the speeches at the UN on uh, next Tuesday? Well, of course, with so many heads of state coming, I, last uh, count I saw was around 125. Um, that doesn't leave a lot of time for each of them to say their, their few words, but they will all have that opportunity. Um, you know, this is not a negotiation. You're not going to see uh, any formal commitments reached or even a joint declaration. At the end, you'll have a, a summation from Ban Ki-moon. Uh, but I expect that uh, heads of state will come prepared to talk about the things they're doing to address climate change uh, and hopefully express some resolve to do more. Uh, certainly, I think from developing countries, you'll hear some emphasis on the need for stronger assistance uh, in order for them to be able to do more. Uh, and I expect that on the part of some developed countries, you may actually hear some pledges of new financial assistance uh, toward the Green Climate Fund that was set up as a result of the agreements reached in Copenhagen and Cancun. And what does that fund do? Well, this was a, a fund established for the specific purpose uh, of helping provide assistance to developing countries, both on the mitigation front to help them reduce their greenhouse gas emissions uh, and on the adaptation front to help them uh, cope with the impacts of climate change. Uh, and the, it's, it's taken a little while uh, to get the fund fully established, and it now is. Uh, and now we've entered the phase of initial capitalization, uh, actually raising funds for the fund. Uh, there have been one or two pledges so far. Uh, we may well see a few more uh, at, the, at the summit in New York, and then I'll, I expect we'll see more as we head toward the Lima conference at the end of the year. So that's interesting. So there is almost like a, a proxy for measuring success of this non-meeting meeting, right? A meeting where there's not a formal agenda, where, where countries are just uh, bringing commitments to the table, that, that the amount that the climate fund the, is able to generate from this meeting could be kind of a considered a marker whether or not this meeting was a success? I, I think you can look at that as, as one measure. Um, I, I think it's really hard to, to set any single measure or, or even, a, you know, a set of discrete measures. This is really about moving the ball forward and building momentum and building political will. I think, the, you know, if you try to stack up the tangible outcomes, the measurable outcomes, uh, against the real need, uh, they may not be all that impressive. But what's really more important is building will and building confidence. I mean, if you step back a little bit uh, from both the summit and the broader negotiating process, I, I think we're at a stage where what that's really about uh, is building confidence. Because knowing that others are doing their fair share helps each of us to do more. So you know, the aim with the Paris Agreement will be to establish some clear commitments from countries and some system of accountability uh, so that we can be confident that people are, are holding to their commitments. Uh, and hopefully it's an agreement that will uh, establish contributions, if not from all parties, at least from the major parties in a balanced way, and that helps contribute to, to confidence. Um, and it's also going to need to be an agreement that helps to, to continue building ambition over time. 
because I think, once again, we'll be in a situation where the actual numbers on the table uh, are not going to get us all the way onto a two-degree pathway. So I, I think it'll be important that the agreement includes some mechanisms to require the countries keep coming back to the question and keep advancing their, uh, their efforts and contributions in a more ambitious way. Um, in the same way, I, I think the, the purpose of a summit like New York is to help build confidence, in this case, to help build confidence um, about countries' intentions heading into the Paris conference next year. So with that in mind, I mean, how much should we read, should we read into the fact that neither India nor China will be uh, sending a head of state to this, uh, to this discussion, the number three and number one emitter, uh, respectively? I think it's probably not. It's important not to overinterpret that. Uh, there are a lot of considerations within the government that go into the question of, uh, you know, which particular official uh, is traveling to any one summit. Uh, and my understanding is that typically uh, in the, uh, the fall UN gatherings, uh, China doesn't send at, at the number one level. So uh, I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily read too much into it. What's important is the messages that they're going to be bringing, uh, and how those messages taken together with the messages we hear with the representatives of other countries, be they head of state or not, uh, you know, come together and represent some genuine expression of collective will to do the best we can. Oh, that's, that's good to hear. I hadn't, uh, that's, that's sort of a counterintuitive take I hadn't, um, heard before that uh, it's, I've been hearing, I guess, a lot of doom and gloom from the advocacy community about the fact that, uh, the Prime Minister of India nor the President of China will be there, but uh, it's well, good we're, to you know, hear we're often we're, we're often uh, very good at measuring things against the ideal and finding them short. And uh, I, I think we can we, we can keep doing that, but I think it's at the same time important to see and recognize and acknowledge the progress that is being made. I think that uh, uh, the take on the Copenhagen conference is an example of that, for instance. Uh, there were expectations set that were unrealistic, that, that it, it simply wasn't in the cards to achieve the kind of outcome that many people had been led to expect for Copenhagen. Uh, and what we did get fell, fell way short of expectations, but in fact was a, a step forward that we've been able to build on uh, since then. And I, I think we need to get past the notion of magic moments. Uh, you know, this is a, an accumulative process that has to build over time. We can't expect any one moment or any one agreement to, to solve the problem. Uh, we need to be tackling this on multiple fronts, from the local to the global. It's going to take time. And, you know, there is unfortunately always this, this uh, uh, inherent risk in summitry uh, of creating false expectations leading to disappointment. Uh, but, again, it, it's really about taking us to the next level in terms of a collective will to do what needs to be done, hopefully demonstrating some, some specific concrete actions, um, but moving the ball forward. So I guess speaking of false expectations leading to disappointment, uh, I was at the last one of these UN confabs in 2007 uh, when the, uh, you know, again, the Secretary General called on heads of state and other concerned parties to give short speeches at the UN for a day. Uh, and at the time, this was intended to give momentum, again, like this one is, but the momentum here was for the Bali summit, and the Bali summit was intended to give momentum for the Copenhagen summit. Uh, and now you're saying that this 
uh, summit is meant to give momentum for the Paris summit. So what's different this time around, do you think? Well, you know, we have the benefit of a couple of decades of experience now within, within this process, within the climate regime under the UN Framework Convention. I think there have been lessons learned. I think, uh, you know, Copenhagen was a bit of a shock to the system, and there have been lessons drawn from that. And I, I think in, in many ways the direction I see us headed uh, toward Paris is really an attempt to try to take some of those lessons on board and craft an agreement that, if you will, is kind of a hybrid of the different things we've tried in the past. Um, people in the, in the uh, climate negotiating world uh, often talk about top-down versus bottom-up agreements. Uh, and, what know, are those? Because that's an important uh, concept. Uh, well, I'd like you unpack it, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it, in very broad terms, uh, it's a question of the balance between uh, national discretion, on the one hand, uh, a more bottom-up approach, uh, and international discipline or rigor at the other end, so a more top-down approach. Um, I mean, it may help to, to just give examples within the climate regime. Uh, the Kyoto Protocol is more toward the top-down end of the spectrum. Uh, you had negotiated, legally binding targets and timetables. Now, that was just for the developed countries, but, but in fact, the actual numbers were negotiated, uh, and they took the form of specific targets that were binding under international law. Uh, by contrast, uh, what you had coming out of Copenhagen and then enshrined the next year in Cancun within the formal UN process uh, was a much more bottom-up approach, um, where countries really defined their contributions uh, in their own terms. They weren't negotiated in any way. Uh, and they're effectively voluntary. They're not binding. Um, and we've seen both of these approaches uh, have strengths and weaknesses. On the one hand, the, the Kyoto approach uh, is clearly more rigorous, uh, both in terms of accounting for emissions, uh, emissions and in terms of the, uh, the legal bindingness of the agreement. At the same time, uh, it, it is encompassing a shrinking, shrinking percentage of global emissions. Uh, the latest round of targets agreed to under Kyoto, those, those run through 2020, uh, include countries that account for, I think, roughly 13% of global emissions. So strong agreement, very little participation. On the other hand, the, the approach you saw coming out of Copenhagen and Cancun, a more... Uh, a more bottom-up approach, and therefore inherently more flexible, uh, has very broad participation. You have 100 or so countries having entered pledges under the Cancun agreements, including all of the major economies, both developed and developing. So you've achieved much broader participation with this approach. Uh, at the same time, when you add all those pledges up, they don't nearly come close enough to putting us on a two-degree pathway. So, you know, we've tried two different directions. Neither one of them as yet has really delivered the, the level of effort that we need. Uh, what we seem to be striving for in Paris is a hybrid of these two approaches, something that incorporates some bottom-up elements to provide the flexibility that you need to achieve broad participation, uh, combine those with some top-down elements that, that bring some rigor to this, uh, some, some ways to help provide for accountability and to measure countries' efforts against our goal and, and keep us working toward that. 
Now, I take it that the Obama administration's preference is more toward the bottom-up approach than the top-down approach, as you describe it, for the fact that uh, an internationally binding treaty uh, is would, would never pass the Senate, right? That two-thirds of Senate are required for treaty ratification, and that is just, you know, if we couldn't even pass Kyoto, can't even pass, like, a UN Disabilities Treaty, let alone some sort of internationally binding climate trade treaty. So how has that preference manifested itself in the negotiations so far, or has it? Well, I think that the positions we've seen the U.S. put forward um, are pretty consistent with a hybrid kind of outcome in Paris. Uh, you know, in launching this round of negotiations, uh, there were certain parameters agreed to. They're, they're pretty broad parameters. One of them is that the agreement has legal force, um, which, you know, is generally understood to mean that there will be some elements of this agreement that are legally binding under international law. And I don't hear, you know, the U.S. disputing that in any way, that it, it, it agreed to those terms. Uh, the real question is what elements of the agreement are binding under international law, and that's uh, obviously one of, one of the central issues under negotiation. And I think how you answer that question would determine, uh, in part, uh, how feasible it will be for the United States to join the agreement. Uh, just one point on ratification. Um, there are different means under the U.S. system for ratifying an international agreement. Uh, and the one that we're all most uh, familiar with uh, is Senate ratification, which, as you noted, does require a two-thirds vote. But there are many international agreements that the U.S. has entered into which have been ratified by executive action without them being submitted to the Senate. Uh, but they're not quote-unquote treaties. Well, I, 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 I'm not a lawyer, so uh, you know I don't want to uh, venture too far into the legal distinctions. I, I think you know what examples were you about treaty, to cite, though? A, a, a treaty is an agreement, is an accord. I mean, these are all interchangeable terms. Uh, we, you, you can. It's up to um, it's up to each government to decide for itself the means by which it ratifies or recedes to an agreement. So, uh, you know, if, if we are making the representations under international law uh, that are required for that agreement to enter into force, and that agreement contains some legally binding uh, elements, then it's a, a legally binding agreement, and the U.S. is a party to it. Um, so, finally... How has the science changed since 2009, since the last, uh, you know, attempt at, at a, a grand uh, accord of some sort? Uh, or what, is there anything we know now that we didn't know then uh, about the state of, of uh, climate? I, I think in a word, the science has, uh, well, in two words, the science has simply strengthened. Uh, I think the fundamentals are the same, but uh, only underscored by more evidence that the, the impacts that we have long anticipated are increasingly here and now. Uh, and I, I think the, you know, the scientific case uh, has been made again and again, and at this point is pretty much irrefutable. And I think we're at a stage where uh, we, we really need to be uh, building on that and broadening and strengthening the message. Uh, I know that uh, a lot of people are hoping that the summit will be an opportunity 
for instance, to really emphasize the economic case for action, uh, not just the, the risks of inaction, the costs to our economy if we don't act, but also the potential benefits of investing in a clean energy economy. So I, I think that uh, you know the, the, the scientific case is there. Uh, and as we work harder to engage broader segments of the public, uh, governments, civil society, uh, we need to be working on other elements of the message as well. Uh, so I know I just said last question, but I thought of one more, if you'll indulge me. Um, Absolutely. Aside from you know the United States, India, China, uh, the big countries, uh, what speeches will you be particularly looking for uh, next Tuesday during the climate summit? Uh, and what are you sort of looking out for? Um, well, I, I think you, you tend to look for the speeches of the, the heavy hitters. Um, and if you don't mind, I, I won't list them. But um, I, I think what I am looking for uh, are, A, uh, some, uh, some statement of specific concrete actions that governments are prepared to take, uh, B, a, a real... Uh, commitment to enter their contributions into this Paris Agreement. And this is a, a point we haven't touched on yet, so if you'll allow me, I'll just go off on, on a little tangent here Please. for a moment. Um, I mean, the Paris, uh, it, it, it's more or less agreed that the Paris Agreement will be built around what we're calling nationally determined contributions. Uh, and this goes back to the, to the bottom-up elements of the agreement. Um, and, and what that means is that countries will decide for themselves both the form and content of their specific contributions to the Paris Agreement. Uh, what's really what's key to, to figure out now is what the, the top-down elements are going to be to ensure some ambition and rigor in those contributions. Uh, but uh, when they met last year in Warsaw, uh, the, the Conference of the Parties called on parties to come forward with those national contributions as, as early as they could, well before Paris, and in the case of those ready to do so, ideally by the first quarter of next year. So the expectation was set that the major players would try to come forward with their intended nationally determined contributions in the first quarter of next year, um, which is the reason that you're actually not going to hear very many, if any, heads of state come to New York prepared to outline a specific commitment uh, for the period beyond 2020. Uh, that's not going to come until next year. But what's important is for them to speak to that, uh, to reaffirm their commitment to come forward with these contributions, to give some indication that they're prepared to invest some serious effort in that, uh, and in the case of those countries with the responsibility and capacity to indicate that they are, intend to provide the assistance needed by others to make sure that they can be contributing their fair share as well. Uh, Elliot, that is so very helpful. Thank you so much for putting this uh, big meeting in a greater context of international climate change negotiations. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Great. Happy to talk to you. 
right. And thank you all for listening. Uh, as I said, that was very, very helpful to me. I will be at the UN during this climate confab, uh, and I look forward to applying some of what Elliot Derringer told me to whatever analysis I can provide on UN Dispatch about the summit. So again, thank you all. Thank you to Elliot, and we'll see you next time. Bye.